Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The Peter Schiff Show. When I recorded my podcast on Friday, gold had closed right at resistance at 1550, and I surmised that we would break through resistance, and I looked at the lack of gold stocks to rally despite that move up in the price of gold. I looked at that as a pretty good contrarian indicator that there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm, that there was a lot of fear out there among Uh, gold stock investors that they just didn't believe the rally and they were anticipating a pullback because they thought the 1550 resistance was going to hold. They expected a correction in the price of gold. And so they wanted to front run that, right? Stocks are generally a discounting mechanism. They try to discount the future. And so if stock market or gold stock investors thought the price of gold would sell off, they would want to get out of their gold stocks now so that they can buy them back cheaper after the price of gold sold off. And I said, well, what if it doesn't sell off? What if gold just breaks through? And that's exactly what it did. In fact, we opened up on Sunday night, uh, our time, New York time. So early in the morning, uh, you know, Asia time, gold gapped up uh, about $30, $35. I think we were trading above $15.85 on the high. So well above that $15.50 resistance. And by the time uh, we got around to the New York time uh, zone. We were well off that high. In fact, we sold off uh, you know, pretty rapidly from that. But we were still up about 20 bucks. And then when the gold stocks began trading, they were up, but not very much. And they immediately started to sell off. Gold you know, followed the stocks lower, and it only ended up 
maybe about 10 or 15 bucks. I forget exactly, but still closed above the 1550 resistance. But gold stocks actually closed lower on the day. So despite the fact that we had had some positive days, you know, maybe three very big days, a $70 up move in the price of gold, uh, gold stocks were negative on the year. And gold, of course, was the you know, best performing financial asset at that time. I mean, relative to the stock market, uh, the bond market, gold was doing really, really well, yet gold stocks were down. And again, to me, that was a good contrarian indicator that investors really just weren't appreciating how bullish this scenario actually was for gold. And of course, by extension, the gold mining stocks. Now, today, gold was up again. In fact, last night we sold off and we really held that 1550 level quite nicely. And we bounced back again today. We closed up maybe about $8 or so as I'm recording this just after the close of the U.S. stock exchange. We're around 1573 on the price of gold. And gold stocks were up today. So they're now back to positive on the year. But they're not up very much. I mean, percentage-wise, the metal, gold, is up more than the mining stocks. Now, normally, it's the other way around. When gold is moving up, the gold mining stocks are moving up even more. And when gold goes down, the gold stocks go down more. But now we're not getting the type of enthusiasm that you would associate with a move up in gold. Again, it's because everybody is expecting the price of gold to go down. But there's a very good chance that it's done going down, that this break above 1550 is a significant breakout. We may not trade back below there. Now, if we do, you know, buy. Because I think if you get lucky enough to see the price of gold go back down to maybe the low 1500s, then you want to buy it. I'm not sure if we're going to get below 1500 again. This is a bull market, and I don't think it's going to give people that type of opportunity. We're not going to get back down to the vicinity of the last low, which was like, what, 1460-ish or 70? I forget exactly where we went down to, but I don't think we're going back there again. We could go back down uh, to the low 1500s or maybe slightly below, but we may not. We may not look back below 1550. We may be taking out 1600. But as far as I'm concerned, this is a gift right now in the mining stock market. I mean, I think the market is really asleep. I think investors are not perceiving just how bullish the environment is for gold, not just the heightened geopolitical risk associated with the killing uh, in Iraq of the Iranian general. I'm not talking about that. That's just another positive for the market that is going to help the market because it is going to be a negative factor that's going to be overhanging the global economy, at least for the rest of the Trump presidency, which, of course, may not be that much longer. Everybody assumes he's a shoo-in to be reelected. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, bet on that. But assuming that he's not, or regardless, this is going to be uh, a, an event that is going to cause gold to have a higher risk premium. But I think it also is another thing for the stock market to have to worry about. And there's a lot of things that people who are invested in the stock market should be worried about. This is just another one, but it could be another reason for stocks to go down, which is another reason for uh, the Fed to print more money as if it needs reasons. It's going to be doing that anyway. It's going to be cutting rates anyway. But the uncertainty added by the enhanced geopolitical risk just 
throws, you know, gasoline on this bullish fire for gold. So I think that we may have a very short window of opportunity here for people to increase their allocations to to gold stocks, right? To invest more heavily right away. In fact, I was just looking at some of the numbers and it's amazing how little people really understand or appreciate just how well gold stocks have been doing over the past four years. So if you go back to the beginning of 2016 until today, which is now a little bit over four years, but during the four-year period I'm talking about, the S&P has returned about 72%. I mean, that's pretty good, 72% over the last four years. Except if you look at the GDX, which is an index of gold stocks, that index is up 125% or has returned 125% over the past four years. That is much better than the return on the S&P 500. Yet nobody on CNBC talks about that. They talk about how great the stock market is. And yes, yeah, 72% is a good return over four years, except it's not 125%, which is what people have made in gold stocks over the last four years. And in fact, if you look at the last five quarters, right, which includes all of last year, plus that big sell-off in the fourth quarter of 2018, the S&P is up a little over 12% during those five quarters. The GDX is up a little over 58% during the same five quarters. So recently, and over the last four years, people are making more money in gold stocks than in the S&P 500, even though the S&P 500 is up. Now, if people are making more money in gold stocks than they are in the S&P during a bull market, imagine what's going to happen during a bear market. Because during a bear market is when gold stocks are really going to shine. So if gold investors are making this much money in a bull market for stocks, imagine how much more money they're probably going to make in a bear market. You know, I, I see a lot of comments, you know, on my podcast, you know, a lot of the people that like to heckle me, they, they try to point out how all my listeners are just missing out on all these profits, right? That anybody who follows my advice is missing out on this great stock market bull market. Well, certainly not over the last four years, if the advice you took was to buy gold stocks, because anyone who's bought gold stocks over the last four years, they haven't missed out on anything. I mean, who's missing out are the people who are buying the S&P and not gold stocks, right? It's not that bears are missing out on the gains in the stock market, right? It's the bulls that are missing out on the gains in the gold stock market because gold stocks are delivering bigger gains than the S&P, at least over the last five years or four years. It's not true over a longer time period, but I think over the next several years, the gains on gold stocks relative to the S&P are going to be even bigger. We are just getting started. This is early. So people who have been following my advice recently over the last four years, over the last five quarters, if you bought gold stocks, you're not missing out on anything, right? You made more money in gold stocks than people who own the S&P. Now, of course, I don't just recommend gold stocks. I don't tell people put all your money in gold stocks. But to the extent that you put some money in gold stocks, then you did better with that money than you would have done had you put that money into the S&P 500. Now, of course, the rest of my investment advice is predicated on the U.S. dollar going down, right? Because I'm investing in foreign stocks, which I believe will outperform U.S. stocks because there's better valuations and because I think they're going to have the tailwind of a falling dollar, 
We haven't had a falling dollar yet. So U.S. stocks have been outperforming foreign stocks, but I expect that to change. And in fact, the strength that we're seeing in the gold market, right, is indicative of problems for the dollar. Problems that the foreign exchange markets aren't necessarily reflecting yet, but they will. That is an early warning sign that there is a problem for the U.S. dollar when you're seeing this kind of strength in gold. And of course, gold is making record highs in all the currencies but the U.S. dollar. It's only a matter of time before gold starts making a record high in U.S. dollars as well. But gold stock performance is also really going to start to pick up, which is going to increase the appeal of gold stocks. On Monday, Newmont Mining, which is the only gold stock in the S&P 500, they announced an increase in their dividend, about an 80% increase almost in their dividend. And that brought the dividend yield based on the current price or the price that Newmont was at, I think to about 2.3%, something like that dividend. It's uh, 10 uh, or 25 cents a quarter, so a dollar a year dividend on the stock. And it's about 2.3% yield, which is a big deal because the yield on the entire S&P 500 is only about 1.8%. Yet you can get a 30% higher yield by buying a gold stock, by buying Newmont Mining. So if you can get a 2.3% yield on Newmont Mining and still have the upside of Newmont Mining, right? that to me seems like it's very compelling for typical investors. And I think that this dividend increase that we saw in Newmont is not the end, it's the beginning. I think Newmont is going to be raising its dividend on a regular basis because I expect the price of gold to be rising on a regular basis. So I do think that in the next several years, people are going to be looking at gold stocks as income stocks. They're going to be good dividend payers because they're going to have all this cash. They're going to be making all these profits because the price of gold is going to be going up so much faster than the cost of mining it that they're going to be returning those profits to shareholders through dividends. Of course, they'll also return through buybacks, but there's going to be higher dividends, which is going to be a compelling investment case for these stocks. Meanwhile, the rest of the S&P isn't growing their earnings. They're not increasing their dividends. In fact, I think they're going to be cutting back on their dividends. So this is a great environment for uh, gold mining stocks. Now, of course, I want to throw it out there. I mean, I own a bunch of Newmont. We own Newmont Mining uh, in, uh, in our managed accounts and in our funds, along with a lot of other gold stocks. So I'm not you know, giving a, an investment recommendation to buy that particular stock. I'm just using it as an example uh, of, uh, of what's going on in the gold market. You can you know, decide for yourself or talk to one of my brokers uh, at Europe Pacific Capital about individual gold stocks that you may want to buy. But I, my personal advice, I'm not recommending that people go out and buy individual stocks. I think the best thing you can do is buy my fund, right? I have a mutual fund, uh, Europe Pacific Gold Fund, which I think is the best way to gain exposure to gold mining stocks. Because I think hiring a manager like Adrian Day, Adrian Day is uh, the manager of the Europe Pacific Gold Fund. So I can't even take credit for how good the returns are because I'm not the portfolio manager. Although I can take credit for hiring Adrian uh, to manage the portfolio because he's an expert. He's a great stock picker. He has an incredible track record that goes back over 30 years. So long before uh, he was running my gold fund, he was running separately managed accounts 
which he still does, uh, but he also runs uh, this gold fund. And you know, Morningstar gives us five stars uh, on that fund. In fact, at the end of last year, I got a plaque from Lipper uh, that I have in my office because we have the number one performing gold fund uh, over the five-year period ended in uh, 2018. And we were also number one for the three-year period ended December uh, 2018. So I got a plaque for that. And, you know, not only are our returns really, really good on the fund, uh, past per, uh, returns, but if you look at uh, the rankings, they also measure uh, risk. And our fund, even though we have above average returns, we have below average risk, which is, that's exactly what you want, because it means that we're making more money than the average gold fund, but when the average gold fund goes down, we go down less. So we have smaller drawdowns, but we end up going up more. So we make more with less risk. I mean, it is a great fund, uh, and I think that's how people, if you want to get into the gold market, uh, that's the way to do it because we have a great diversified portfolio, a lot of good junior mining companies in that, in, in that fund. So rather than picking the stocks yourself, you can hire Adrian. Now, if you don't want to be in a mutual fund, we do have separately managed accounts, which you can set up. But the problem is that's going to take a while, right? You, we're, it, we're a fiduciary. There's a lot of forms. There's a lot of paperwork. What I'm thinking is this window is not going to be open. I mean, I can't believe that the price of these gold stocks hasn't already moved up more given the fact that gold is broken out. And I, I think, this again, this breakout is real. And the fact that there's so few people that seem to believe it's real is what encourages me even more to think it's going to go up because markets tend to try to surprise people. And people will be surprised if the price of gold keeps moving up. And so before they figure out what's going on, you want to get positioned. And I think my gold fund is the easiest way to do it. I mean, you could just buy it. I mean, it's on Schwab. It's on Fidelity. If you have accounts there, just buy my gold fund. Um, and you can you know, I'll certainly call up your Pacific Capital, set up an account, get into the gold fund. It's very quick. You get a prospectus. You buy the fund. It's no problem. But obviously, you know, there's risk, right? I think there's tremendous upside potential in gold stocks. I think we've barely scratched the surface over these last four years as far as where I think we're going. I think in the short run, we could see a explosive move just to catch up to what gold has already done. You know, gold is almost at a seven-year high right now. But seven years ago, gold had already dropped quite a bit. Because remember, in 2011, gold hit 1900 But we're almost at a seven-year high when last time gold was you know, close to 1600 was seven years ago. Well, if gold stocks get back to where they were seven years ago, they have to go up by more than 30%. But the big move would be to get back to where they were in 2011, which I think they're going to do. Ultimately, I think they're going a lot higher than that because I think gold is going a lot higher than 1900, right? And the reason gold initially went up to 1900 was because people back then in 2011 were smart enough to worry about QE and worry about where the Fed was taking us with the policy of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. But then the Fed managed to convince everybody that they had it under control, that everything was working out, that it was temporary, that they could shrink their balance sheet back to normal, that they could normalize interest rates. And it was for that reason that gold sold off because everybody believed that they were wrong to be worried, that the Fed had it under control, that they were a bunch of geniuses and there was nothing to worry about. Well, I knew enough to know that that was BS, 
that they didn't have it under control, that they could never normalize rates, that they can never shrink their balance sheet, and that the people who initially bid gold up to 1900 were right. It was the people who sold it down to 1000 uh, that were wrong. And that's when gold bottomed out in December of 2015, when the Fed finally got around the raising rates. That's when gold bottomed. And it's been rising ever since. But when the people who were buying it initially up to 1900 realized that their first uh, you know, reaction was the correct one and they got faked out by the Fed, they're going to bid it through the roof because we are going back to zero. We're doing more quantitative easing. And then nobody is going to believe there's an end to this. No one's going to believe there's an exit strategy. It's QE forever. It's 0% forever. And then the bottom drops out of the dollar and gold goes through the roof. So that's what's happening. So I think before this next big move up, you want to load up on gold stocks. I think the best way to do it is through my gold fund, Europe Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX is the symbol, although there are multiple symbols because we have various share classes. Again, read a prospectus. It's very risky. Obviously, any fund that can go up, I think this fund can go up 10 times, 20 times. That's how much potential I think there is in gold stocks. But of course, there's no free lunch. Don't invest in gold stocks. Don't invest in my fund unless you're prepared to lose a bunch of money if gold goes down and if gold stocks go down, if I'm wrong, right? So don't put money in here that you can't afford to lose. But if you want to make a lot of money, if you want to get a 10-bagger or more, you can't do that without taking risk. So if it's worth it for you, if you have some risk tolerance, if you're willing to lose some money based on the possibility of making even more money, because the worst case scenario is you lose your investment, which I think is a very low probability uh, outcome because all the all the stocks in our fund would have to go bankrupt for the fund to go to zero. So pretty much dismiss that. But can can the fund get cut in half? Sure, it, it can get cut in half. You can lose half your money. That's certainly a realistic possibility. I don't think that's going to happen, but it's possible. And don't invest in it unless you know you're willing to suffer that loss if it happens. But that's only half your money. If gold goes to 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, you can make 10, 20 times your money. So I think the, the risk reward is, is tilted in the favor of the reward. So I'm willing to take that downside risk in order for the potential of that upside reward. And I think the reward is coming because I think the markets are wrong. I think they're mispricing gold. I think they're mispricing gold stocks because we have a perfect storm right now for gold. We have the monetary policy. We have the global geopolitical risk. We have the election and the political uncertainty out there. Everything is screaming that gold's a buy, yet so many investors are tone deaf. They have no idea. You know, they, they have that expression, nobody rings a bell. Well, there's bells ringing all over the place. It's just that nobody hears the bell. So I'm making sure that the people who listen to my podcast are hearing this bell. And they get into these gold stocks. Of course, if you want to do something very conservative, buy physical gold. I mean, physical gold is still a buy at 1575. Silver is an even better buy. We're still, we just got above $18 on the price of silver. So if you don't want to get into stocks, if you don't want to get into my fund, buy yourself some silver. Call up Shift Gold and get some silver. I mean, the silver traders are totally asleep. Silver should be jamming right now. But, you know, there's an expression about a gift horse and don't look it in the mouth. Well, that's what you've got right now in silver. You know, don't scratch your head and worry about, hey, why isn't the price going up? Just buy it because it's going to go up, right? So 
SIF Gold sells physical gold, physical silver, called Europe Pacific Capital, uh, to get in on my gold fund. I'm actually going to be on Fox Business tomorrow uh, on Charles Payne's show. Making Money, I think, is the name of it. It goes on from 2 to 3 o'clock Eastern time. I'm not really sure um, when in the hour my hit's going to be, but I'm going on specifically to talk about gold, to talk about gold stocks. I mean, nobody else is doing it, so I got to go on and do it and talk about it. But again, you know, people are just completely ignoring uh, these gains and focusing on the gains in the U.S. stock market. But these gains are likely to go away. I mean, we're nearing the end of that bull market, but we're in the beginning, the early stages of the gold bull market and the gold stock bull market. So we want to make sure and and take advantage of that. And of course, you know, once the dollar does turn and this strength in gold, again, is indicative of a problem for the dollar. And by the way, you know, the dollar didn't get a big safe haven bid out of uh, what's going on in Iran. You didn't see a big move into treasuries. The big move was in gold, right? So gold is the safe haven not the U.S. dollar, not the U.S. Treasury market. There is a lot of risk in the U.S. dollar and the U.S. Treasury market. Now, I know there's going to be all those people out there that are going to say, oh, wait a minute, Peter, Bitcoin is the safe haven. Look, Bitcoin is now above 8,000. Of course, I was making fun of Bitcoin a few days ago on Twitter because it really couldn't rally much, and now it's having a bigger rally. And in fact, the biggest rally is in that uh, Bitcoin trust. GBTC is the Bitcoin Investment Trust which has rallied way more than Bitcoin. I think it was up 10% today, maybe 10% yesterday. It is just jamming. You know, gold stocks are not moving the way the price of gold is, but Bitcoin trust is moving way more than the price of Bitcoin, which is the opposite, right? All the people who want to speculate in the stock market who are buying shares of the Bitcoin trust, they're so excited that Bitcoin is breaking out that they're bidding that trust up to a huge premium. It's the opposite of what you have in the gold stock market. Gold stock investors are cautious. They're worried that this gold move isn't real. And so they're not wanting to buy gold stocks. It is real. They should be buying. The Bitcoin move is not real. This is all a bunch of nonsense. There is no safe haven buying in Bitcoin. This is speculators buying in Bitcoin because they're taking advantage of the gold rally to try to bid up Bitcoin to say, oh, look, see, Bitcoin is moving. This same thing happened a few months ago when the yuan broke through seven. Remember that? When the yuan broke above seven and all of a sudden gold rallied and Bitcoin rallied too. And the Bitcoin guys were out there. You see, Bitcoin's a new safe haven. It's digital gold. It's acting like a safe haven, right? Except Bitcoin lost all of those gains, right? Gold didn't lose those gains. Gold added to those gains. So Bitcoin was not bought as a safe haven. It was being marketed as a safe haven by speculators who bought it and who were looking on to dump it uh, to anyone who was willing to buy into it. That's what's going on right now. You have this environment. You have the, the whales that are able to manipulate this market higher, to FOMO people into the Bitcoin market because they believe, ah, oh, you see, it's digital gold. It's going to the moon. Look, it's above 8,000. Uh, this thing can dump at any minute. And it will, you know, we'll see maybe by the next time uh, people listen to this podcast. So forget about Bitcoin as a legitimate financial asset. But in the real world of actual safe havens that institutions would, would go to, they're going to gold, not U.S. Treasuries, not the U.S. dollar. And that shows you that there is an inherent problem with the dollar. And that problem is going to manifest itself 
as you know, time goes by over this year, the dollar will sell off. And when that happens, that's a bigger problem for U.S. stocks and bonds, but it's also going to be a, a big positive for the global investor, for what we're doing with our non-gold stocks. See, our gold stocks have been outperforming the U.S. market, but not our non-gold stocks, which is the bulk of what we have our money in. It's not gold stocks, although personally, I have more of my own money in gold stocks than non-gold stocks, but that's because I'm willing to take that kind of risk. Uh, a lot of my clients aren't, and so you know their their gold portfolio is a smaller percentage of their overall portfolio. But the other stocks haven't been doing as well as the U.S. market. I think that is all going to change when the dollar's fortunes change. And of course, again, this heightened geopolitical risk is actually going to work against the U.S. dollar. It's going to work against the U.S. economy. And you know, I when I spoke about uh, the uh, the killing of Soleimani on my podcast on Friday. Somebody pointed out, uh, you know, I, I kind of made a mistake in my analogy because I said that when we killed him, it was an act of war. And I said, if the shoe was on the other foot, how would we feel in America if a foreign power assassinated one of our generals uh, on our soil? And I, you know, I really shouldn't have said on our soil because we didn't assassinate or we didn't kill Soleimani in Iran. We, we killed him in Iraq. But I don't think that that renders my analogy, uh, you know, meaningless. I think it's just as significant. I mean, how would we feel if a foreign power killed one of our top generals when he was in Canada or when he was in Mexico? I mean, we would be just as pissed. I mean, that's that's our territory. That's North America. It's right near our border. Yet, and and they killed one of our top guys. It would be considered an act of war, and so. The, the Iranians considered an act of war. But, you know, this further complicates it. The fact that he was on an airport in Iraq complicates the situation because now we put the Iraqis in a difficult position because now, you know, they had to take a vote. They want to kick out the American forces. We have American troops all over Iraq as a result of the, you know, the Iraq war and, and kicking out uh, Saddam Hussein. We have, you know, all these troops there. And, and so now they, you know, they got to kick us out because, you know, there's politically, you know, they, they, they can't stand with the U.S. now that we've done that. They have to show that uh, they oppose uh, this act. So they have to kind of show some solidarity uh, with with Iran. And so, you know, they're voting to kick us out. And now Trump, you know, oh, no, we're not going to leave. Right. You want us to leave? No, we're not going to leave unless you pay us back all the money we spent building up all those bases, which, of course, is never going to happen. But if you remember, Donald Trump was critical of the Iraq war. He said we never should have gone to war. We never should have been in Iraq. OK, here's his opportunity to get out. And now he doesn't even want to leave. So he he says he didn't want to go there. But now he doesn't want to go because the Iraqis are asking him to leave. But this whole thing complicates our policy in the Middle East. We got more troops headed over there now, not fewer troops. Right. Donald Trump was supposedly going to be pulling troops out of the Middle East. Now he's sending more troops there. Again, another thing where Trump is doing the opposite of what he promised, which is another thing here politically that irritates me about this. First of all, right, Trump is getting widespread a condemnation uh, from the left for what he did. And I completely discount all the criticism of the left because had Barack Obama done the exact same thing as Trump, they all would have been applauding it. Right? Nobody would have criticized Barack Obama from the left. None of the Democrats would have been critical of Obama had he done exactly the same thing that Trump did. On the other hand, all the Republicans 
are in support of what Trump did. Yet if Obama did it, you'd have a number of Republicans who would be against it, right? As I said on my earlier podcast, I think it was a mistake, right? Now, first of all, according to Trump, right, they had intelligence that this guy was in Iraq planning some type of attack that would have, you know, killed some Americans somewhere. I'm not really sure what the details are. Supposedly we're going to get that. But supposedly there was some valid intel that provided the justification uh, to kill him. Now, we're supposed to believe that? I mean, A, it's not like Donald Trump has an excellent track record of honesty. He doesn't. Trump lies about everything. He lies about all sorts of little things. So if he's going to lie about little things, why wouldn't he lie about something like this? And of course, if he was lying about it, well, it'd be consistent with what's happened in the past. Remember, why did we even go into Iraq? The reason we had that war was because Saddam Hussein supposedly possessed weapons of mass destruction, right? That's what our intel said. We had to go there because he had weapons of mass destruction, except when we got in there, we didn't find any weapons of mass destruction. So it was wrong. So we went into war based on a lie. Well, maybe we killed uh, Soleimani based on another lie. I mean, we're just supposed to believe this, you know, but you have all these Republicans who were very, you know, skeptical of the military industrial complex of the deep state, Right? I mean, even Donald Trump himself, I mean, this is something that the left has dug up, and I've watched this uh, interview or recording. I'm not really sure what the circumstances were behind Trump uh, with this recording, but it was in 2011, and it had to do, you know, Obama was running for re-election for 2012, and Trump basically said that he thought that Barack Obama would deliberately start a war with Iran to help him get re-elected, that he was so desperate that he was probably going to lose. And so what he's going to do is start a war with Iran. And how pathetic was that, that a president for political purposes would go to war just to get reelected. That's what he was thinking. And he was publicly saying and accusing Barack Obama of doing. Now, all of a sudden, four years later, he's president and he's starting a war with Iran and his reelection is coming up. So it's very curious that, well, wait a minute, since Trump was thinking that Obama would start a war with Iran to get reelected, well, maybe he started a war with Iran. He thought it was a good idea for Obama. He thought it would work for Obama, so maybe he thought it would work for himself. Now, I know a lot of people think, oh, he's a shoo-in anyway, but maybe he wanted to take out an insurance policy because typically when a war is going on, patriotically, everybody rallies around the current president, right? Because you want to be patriotic during a war, and you remember that, you know, the whole wag the dog, that movie. And so, but you know, it's so ironic because, you know, Trump almost always has been doing the opposite of the way he's campaigned, yet none of his supporters call him out. Now, I call him out. I voted for him. I, you know, I was one of Trump's big supporters. Remember when the Access Hollywood tape came out? Go back and listen to the podcast that I did. I was probably the first person to go out on a limb and say, I don't care. You know, it's locker room talk. I said that, you know, before he did. I I defended everything he said uh, uh, to Billy Bush uh, in that bus. And I said, there's nothing wrong with what he said. And I came right. I didn't care that it was politically incorrect. So, you know, I was defending Trump when a lot of people wouldn't defend him. But the problem is now when he's doing stuff that's wrong and saying stuff that's wrong, uh, I call him out. But you have all these people that are blind and, and, and completely, you know, Look, look at um, Lou Dobbs. I mean, look at some of these comments. I used to be on Lou Dobbs' show quite a bit back in the day. 
course, she stopped having me on a while ago. I don't know if that has to do with the fact that I'm not, you know, I'm not a big Trump lover as, as much as he is. But he, I mean, he thinks Trump's a god. I mean, he says that no mortal will ever be able to live up uh, to the Trump standard. He thinks Trump is the greatest president we've ever had. I mean, going back to George Washington. So, of course, he could do no wrong, right, because he's a god, right, and gods are infallible. But you have this type of loyalty among some of the, you know, the real uh, Trump supporters. And I think this is very unfortunate uh, because if he goes down, a lot of the right wing supposed uh, free market ideology is going to really get blackened uh, uh, in the future. And if we have a socialist, we have a Bernie Sanders president or if we have, you know, a sympathetic Congress, which is a very, very real risk that the markets haven't even begun to price in. Right. That's another reason why I'm saying that this gold market could have so much further to run based on that possibility, just based on the market starting to price in the potential that Trump isn't reelected and we have a socialist. What is that going to do? Right. Where are the deficits going to go? How many trillions and trillions of dollars? And the other problem for the deficits, when Obama was president and wanted to spend a lot of money, the Republicans in Congress stopped him, right? That was the whole Tea Party movement. It was an anti-deficit spending movement. In fact, it was the Republican Congress that put a, a, a stop on Clinton, right? They're the ones that stopped Clinton from spending more money when they retook Congress. The same thing happened in, in 2010. They put a stop to a lot of the Obama spending that might otherwise have taken place. See, the Republicans do an okay job. I mean, not a great job, but they do an okay job of slowing down the growth of spending when there's a Democratic president. They do a lousy job of slowing it down when there's a Republican president. That, that's the big problem. But the bigger problem this time around is because the Republicans would have run up such big deficits while Trump was president, they are not going to be in the same position that they were in in 2010 to try to provide any pushback to a socialist uh, government because they want to run big deficits to spend money when they did nothing about stopping the deficits under, under a Trump. They're not going to be able to say, we, we can't afford it. We can't spend this money because we can't afford it. Oh, sure, we'll just borrow it. What's the difference? Who cares how big the deficit is? Because you guys didn't give a damn about the deficit when you were giving tax cuts to the rich. You didn't give a damn about the deficit when you were spending trillions of dollars building up the military. So why should you care about the deficit when we just want to help out average people, when we want to help out the middle class, we want to create jobs, we want to provide education, we want to provide health care, right? They're dead. So there is no, you know, uh, uh, backstop. There's not even talk of fiscal responsibility. Now, I didn't believe it when they talked about it back then. I knew it was all BS. I knew the deficits were never going to be brought under control. But a lot of people got fooled. They actually believed that Congress was going to do something. Well, when we have a socialist president spending money with no opposition, nobody is going to believe that. So it's going to be a fiscal train wreck. It's going to be a, a crisis in uh, the, the, the bond market, in the dollar. But even before that happens, the markets have to start factoring in the possibility that it might. And that is extremely bullish for gold. It's extremely bearish for the stock market. It's bearish for the dollar. So before all those negative scenarios really start you know, being run 
on computer models and the markets have a chance to react, you react now, right? If you have more money in the U.S. stock market, get out. I mean, you might as well be in gold stocks, right? I mean, I don't recommend that anybody be all in gold stocks, but personally, if it was have all my money in the S&P versus have all my money in gold stocks, I'd rather have all my money in gold stocks. I think gold stocks have a lot more upside potential than the S&P, and I actually think it has less downside risk. Now, I'm not recommending that somebody put all their money in gold stocks. I think people should be diversified, but I would rather have gold stocks than the S&P 500. And as I said, over the past five quarters, you know, that's been a much better deal over the last four years. Now, past performance is no guarantee of future success. That's what they, they always say. But I think that this recent performance is telling you something. This is indicative of a new trend that the mainstream is missing, right? That the, the average, you know, hedge fund or all these big, big institutional investors, they are missing out on this. They will get in in a few years, right? Once the moves are a lot more obvious. But before that happens, this is the opportunity to, to do something about it yourself. And also, I wanted to finish up today's podcast by going over some of the videos that I have up on my YouTube channel. You know, if you're not going to my YouTube channel, if you're not a subscriber, you should go there to Peter Schiff. I got 275,000 subscribers. We need to get up to 300,000. Uh, hopefully I you know, can do that relatively soon. I think if people help uh, spread the word on my channel, we can get more subscribers. But there are a lot of uh, you know videos up there that I particularly want people to watch if you haven't already watched them. And so I wanted to pull up some of the more popular ones that I've already done. The number one video on my YouTube channel is my Occupy Wall Street, uh, I Am The 1%. I got 1.7 million views on that. Now, I put that up a year ago. Of course, I did it about six years ago with Reason. And when Reason first launched it, they got millions and millions of views. And, and then several other websites have put it up. I forget the name of this site that put it up a couple of years ago, and they got like 2 million views. So, you know, 10 million people, maybe more, have seen various versions of my Occupy Wall Street video. By far, it is the most popular YouTube video that I've ever posted, that I've ever done. Uh, so a lot of you have probably seen that one, but if you haven't seen it, it's an hour and 48 minutes, and you can, you know, it's right there on my, my YouTube channel. Uh, but another one that I did, which also was pretty popular, but a lot of people probably haven't seen it because I recorded it seven years ago, and if you're a you know relatively new listener, you might not have listened to it, but it's titled Democrats Let's Ban Profits. And this was at the 2012 um, Democratic Convention. And I went to both the Republican and the Democratic conventions that year. But remember, this is before Bernie Sanders, right? This is before Elizabeth Warren really became popular. But this really shows you the socialist mentality that already existed within the Democratic Party. I mean, if you haven't seen this, it's four minutes and 48 seconds. But if you don't think socialism is a real threat, listen to this YouTube video. Watch this video. Uh, because basically what I did is I went down there and I asked if the delegates would be in favor of adding a, a, a plank to the Democratic platform to ban corporate profits, right? To make it illegal for corporations to have a profit. And you know what? Almost everybody I asked was in favor of it. Now, not everybody. I mean, I only showed the people, but I would say that 60, 70 percent of the people I talked to were completely in favor of the idea. They didn't even put up an argument with me. 
some of them, you know, I had to convince them and then they then they agreed with me. Right. But most of them were like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I mean, so these guys are complete socialists. They think profits should be illegal. And these are not like the rank and file voters. This is the cream of the Democratic crop. These are the delegates, the delegates who wanted to ban corporate profits. And they wanted to ban them in 2012, long before we had Sanders and Warren. So imagine what these guys are going to do if they have the White House in, uh, in 2021, right? Imagine, right? So watch that video. I had a lot of fun making it. It was a lot of laughs uh, doing it. But, you know, you laugh about it, but then you also need to cry about it because this is our country. This is what, you know, people who are high up politically, this is what these guys were thinking. So take a look at that video. Then, of course, my mortgage banker speech was from uh, 2006. If you haven't seen that, November 2006, I totally nail the uh, um, the housing bubble and the financial crisis. And the backstory, if you don't know the backstory behind that um, that appearance, I was at that conference a year earlier. And I wish I had a video recording of that. I really wish I did because I'd love to post it because I did a like a panel debate with some of the biggest guys in, in, in the mortgage and real estate market, you know, uh, in the country. And this was a year earlier, and everybody was wildly bullish, crazy bullish on housing. And I was the only bear. And I was like, look, housing's a bubble. The prices are going to go down. And so what happened was a year later, uh, they called me up and said, hey, you know, a lot of the things you said a year ago are starting to come true. We'd like to invite you back to do a debate on housing. And I was like, all right, but you need to give me a workshop because I was trying to raise money for the hedge fund, the short subprime. And I thought, this is great. There's going to be 3,000 mortgage bankers that are going to be at this conference. Some of them might want to hedge their occupations by putting some money in my hedge fund. And um, so based on that, they agreed to give me a workshop to promote the hedge fund. And so I agreed to do this uh, this debate. And that's what you'll see on my YouTube channel, Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers. So, you know, so check that out. And by the way, of the 3,000 people who invested um, – who, who attended, of the 3,000 people who attended, only one person uh, decided to invest in the hedge fund to short uh, subprime mortgages. Of course, you know, that guy did extremely well uh, on that particular investment. But anyway, so just go to that video, Peter Schiff Mortgage Bankers. Then there's my Walmart video. Wal- Will Walmart shoppers support everyday high wages? That is an excellent video. I get a kick out of it every time I watch it. I watch it myself and I laugh. Uh, it's five minutes and 57 seconds. By the way, the woman in that video uh, with me is not my wife. It's my mother-in-law. So it's my my wife's mother. Because I remember when I when I initially did it, I got so much heat from the left. I was getting death threats in the mail. I mean, the liberals got so pissed off at this video. That's why you'll see a lot of thumbs down because it got popular on a lot of liberal uh, sites. And so they were, you know, they were going on the on there. You get a kick out of it if you read all these comments by the liberals who, you know, who uh, posted, uh, you know, hate about me uh, for, you know, accosting all these, uh, you know, these Walmart shoppers with all this nonsense. But I really was proving a point and it does a great job of doing that. Uh, I wish it had more views, really. I mean, this in this talk of higher minimum wage and $15 minimum wage, if more people would watch that Walmart video it's got 315,000 views. I did it six years ago, uh, but uh, but check that one out. Then another one of my favorite YouTube videos is, is a college degree worth the cost? You decide. 
I love that video. I had a lot of fun making that video in New Orleans. Uh, seven years ago, I did that video. Because, you know, I go to New Orleans every year for the New Orleans Investment Conference. And um, when I'm there, you know, I got the idea of, you know, going through Bourbon Street and just asking all the people that were working there that night, you know, where they went to college and uh, uh, when they graduated and what their major was and how much debt they had. Of course, these are bartenders and, uh, you know, bouncers in strip clubs, you know, and, 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 and of course, everyone went to college. So it really shows you how much money is wasted on college thanks to the government. So it's a great video. Uh, I wish more people had seen it. You know, I mentioned it on the Joe Rogan show one of the times I was on there and still only has 253,000 views. Um, so, yeah, check it out and share it with your friends, because I really think that that video should be far more widely disseminated. Now, another good one I'm looking at, which got a lot of views on it, you know, for what it was, is my last appearance on CNN. It's seven years ago. And I was on 360 with uh, uh What's his name? Faid Zakaria, I think I'm pronouncing it right. But I was on a panel with three other liberals and me, and they were talking about Obamacare. This is seven years ago. Every one of these guys was gushing over Obamacare, and they all predicted that thanks to Obamacare, health care costs were finally going to go down, that insurance rates were going to go down. I was the only one on that panel who said that's not going to happen. In fact, it's going to accelerate the increase. I said because of Obamacare, Insurance is going to be even more expensive, that the rate of increase is going to be faster after Obamacare than before. And of course, I was the only one that was right. And probably I'm the only one that wasn't invited back on. That was my very last appearance on CNN seven years ago. And I, I challenge anybody, watch that interview. It's got 247,000 views. I kicked ass, right? I mean, look at the comments, right? I mean, I did a great job if I don't say so myself. In fact, I think I did such a good job that that's why they banned me from CNN. They're like, we can't have this guy on. He is too convincing. He is too compelling. We can't put our liberals on to argue with this guy. We don't, we don't have a chance. So they need a lighter weight. They need somebody who's not a, as good on TV uh, arguing these points on CNN because it's a very liberal, uh, very liberal network. But I, you know, before that, I used to go on, you know, I'm not, you know, they invited me on. I would go on Headline News, and I was on CNN. I did various different shows. But after this show, and you look at it, I mean, did I say anything bad? I was a great guest. I defended myself against three opponents simultaneously, and I beat them all, and then they never invited me back on. So it's it, watch that video, and then share it with your friends. Peter Schiff argues against three typical liberals on, on CNN. And, you know, another video that I think is underappreciated is my Senate testimony. I went to Senate twice. Uh, so if you look for Mr. Schiff returns to Washington and Mr. Schiff goes to Washington, you can watch both of the videos. In fact, I a year ago, I put them out because I was upset that more people hadn't seen them. And so I have a recording. It's like an hour and 10 minutes. And it's, it's I think it's titled, uh, Peter Schiff goes to uh, Washington twice, where I put both testimonies together and I have an introduction. So it's a little over an hour. So watch that one. That one only has about 20, 25,000 views. So that's a good one to watch because it has both of those videos combined. But I really you know, think it, it shows you because everybody will see me uh, sitting there at a table and everybody is around me and everybody's got piles of notes and they're all reading from prepared scripts. 
And I'm sitting there, I don't have a piece of paper in front of me. I've got nothing in writing. And I'm just talking off the top of my head. And I'm the only there guy there who's not advocating a special interest. Everybody else is, you know, paid there. They're, they're on behalf of some special interest trying to make money, right? Uh, you know, trying to, you know, drink uh, from, you know, from the, the, the public teat in, in D.C., right? They've all, they're all trying to get, get something. And I'm there trying to represent the taxpayer, right, who doesn't have any lobbyists. I'm just trying to do what's right. And I'm the guy that doesn't need a script because I'm talking from the heart, right? These guys had to prepare these things because, you know, they're not being honest. It's not anything they believe in. It's just like they're just doing what they need to do. So it's, it's really an, an interesting contrast uh, to watch. And, you know, obviously, I, I don't think I'm going to get invited back, right? I mean, I testified twice. And, uh, you know, actually, I used to say that the guy that invited me on the second time got fired. I, that's what I initially I heard, but he didn't get fired. He ended up, he actually resigned. So I think I got some bad intel. I thought he got fired for inviting me on. Now I feel a little better that I didn't, I didn't cost the guy his job. Uh, but, you know, that my last uh, uh, testimony was seven years ago. So I think I was there like eight years ago I testified or nine years ago, then seven years ago. But that's that's it. I haven't been asked back uh, in seven years. And if you watch my testimony, you'll know why they don't want me back there. That's why, I mean, I, I would have had a great time if I had won the Senate race in 2010. Because if you thought I shook up a Congress, you know, with, for those couple of uh, times I testified, imagine me on the Senate floor uh, with a filibuster. And then finally, you know, there's a lot of other good ones on there if you just go through my YouTube channel and look at the videos. But one another one that I thought was pretty good that didn't get as many views as I thought think it should have was my stand-up comedy. If you do Peter Schiff's stand-up comedy at New York's Funniest Reporters, uh, I did this six years ago. There was just like a, a competition. A lot of people from the financial media went, oh, by the way, so Charles Payne, right, because I said I'm going to be on Charles's show tomorrow. He was also in that contest, and he came in third. I came in second. Charles came in third. I thought he did a pretty good job. I laughed at his skit, but I I, I came in second. I forget the first place was actually a tie, uh, so maybe I technically came in third then because there was a tie for first, and but then then I got second, uh, and I can't even remember who it was. It was it was it was, it was I think it was a, a woman. I, I forget who it was who did that. But but anyway, they they invited us down. And so what I did at this uh, stand-up comedy, I didn't really have a real routine. What I did is I, I used some of the, uh, the stuff that I talked about when I would do a, a, a talk, when I would do a conference or a workshop, and I talked about the government and the national debt. A lot of times I got laughs. A lot of times, you know, when I, when I was doing these workshops, people would laugh at the stuff I was saying. I mean, I was saying it in a serious manner, but the stuff was actually funny. So I wanted to see how would this actually work if I actually moved it into a stand-up routine. So I took the stuff that was getting laughs from my, um, my, my workshops and I put it into a routine. The only thing that was specifically added for that stand-up routine was the stuff I said about pornography. And I did that because I had just recently gotten a, a, um, an email from a guy who was a produced porn for Vivid Entertainment. And he wanted to know if I, you know, if I would be in a movie. Um, and so I, you know, I got a real kick out of that. In fact, I never actually returned the email. He wanted me to come down and, and, and you know, hang out on the set. And, you know, he had an idea. He wanted to put me in a movie or something like that. So I just, you know, I just thought it was funny. But then I incorporated that guy's email 
into my stand-up routine. And if you want to hear, you know, my spin on it, well, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to um, um, give anything away on this. You got to go and you got to listen to the uh, Peter Schiff stand-up comedy at New York's Funniest Reporters. I finished recording this evening's podcast over an hour ago, but no sooner than I finished that I read on Twitter that a U.S. airbase in Iraq was under attack from Iranian missiles. And I've been watching the reports, been watching the news on Fox, and now multiple bases are under attack. Gold has been rising the entire time. As I'm recording this supplement, gold is up $30. It's above $1,600. So this is, I believe, a a seven-year high. We took out the high from Monday night, which was $1,585. So unfortunately... Uh, My gold fund is probably not going to be as good a buy tomorrow as I thought it would be when I recorded uh, this podcast earlier because I had no idea that we were going to have such a big move, although I thought it was possible, but I was a little bit more hopeful that people would have a better chance to get in because we really had a gift horse opportunity to buy. But you know what? Even if we get a big move up, who knows, right? The market could sell off. Anything could happen uh, between now and the open. But it's also possible that gold keeps going up. But whatever happens, even if it's a big up day, even if gold closes above 1600 and we get a decent move up in gold stocks, I still think they're going to be a good buy. There's no way they're going to make up everything just tomorrow. So even if you have to buy a spike, Uh, You're still getting in relatively cheap in the scheme of things. We are still very, very early in this bull market. I still think a lot of people are still fearful uh, that they've missed the opportunity. They're worried about buying gold or buying gold stocks and losing money. Eventually, it's going to be the opposite. It's going to be the fear of missing out. They're going to be afraid of not owning gold stocks, of not only gold, because they're going to be worried about all the money they're missing out on by not owning. But we're nowhere near that mentality yet. So, and what's happening today, again, I don't know why the markets are surprised. You know, oil's up about $2 a barrel, not that much, but we got above uh, uh, $65 a barrel. The Dow futures are off a couple of hundred. That's not very much in the scheme of things. But for those people who thought that this thing was just going to blow over, right, that it was no big deal, that the Iranians were going to do nothing. I mean, how could they do nothing when we put their backs to the wall? We declare war. We take out their general. Uh, they've got to do something. I mean, obviously, we knew something was going to happen uh, when we basically declared a hot war against Iran. I mean, it's not just uh, sanctions and an economic war, but a real war. And as I said earlier in the podcast, this is not ending anything time soon. In fact, Donald Trump had already warned the Iranians on Twitter, uh, no less, that they better not even threaten us. Because if they even threatened us, Trump had already picked out uh, what, 52 targets that he was going to take out, uh, one for every hostage uh, that was held in Iran back in 1980, right? 52 American hostages. But that the targets that he was going to take out would include culturally significant targets. And I really hope the president does not follow through with that threat, because if he does, I think we would really lose the support of a lot of our allies, because you can't do that. I mean, we're not at war with the Iranian people. We're at war with the Iranian government. And you can't take out civilian, culturally significant, uh, religiously significant targets, because that's going to vilify you, not only in Iran, and not only solidify the anti-American, hateful American mood 
But you're also going to get a lot of sympathy for Iran, not only in the Arab community, but all over the world. And of course, if you're going to target uh, civilians, right, you're, you're going to have civilian casualties. So hopefully, to the extent that Trump responds, and we know that he has to, he has no choice, he is going to respond, and this thing is going to escalate, he needs to limit his targets to military targets, right? After all, Iraq is attacking, or Iran rather, is attacking our military installations. They're not targeting civilians. This is a military air force base, and we attacked, we killed their general in Iraq. So he is. they are responding uh, with military targets. We need to respond to the extent that we do, and I'm sure we will, by limiting the response to military targets as well. But again, everybody is underestimating the significance of what is going on, and not just for uh, geopolitical risk, but what about in the United States? What about confidence? What about consumer confidence? If we actually go to war, even a war that we could win, but again, how easy is it to win? How long does it take, right? That, you know, if we have to send troops on the ground into Iran, and who knows once you get there, you know, what else is going to happen, right? You, you know, get into this quagmire and you go deeper and deeper, but it could have an impact on consumer psychology here in the United States, right? Maybe this could be something that could be the tipping point to push the economy into a recession that it might have been headed to anyway. But obviously then the Fed is going to be thinking about this. Oh no, now we need more stimulus. We need more monetary stimulus. We have to take out another insurance policy to make sure that concerns over war in Iran doesn't spill over into the domestic economy. All this nonsense. Everybody is underestimating the significance of what's going on. That's why the price of gold hasn't already moved up much more. But again, regardless of the type of move that we have, uh, you still got to buy. If you were thinking about buying my my gold fund or gold stocks in general or gold, uh, based on what you heard earlier in the podcast, if you were hopeful uh, that the prices wouldn't be up tomorrow, well, they may be up. But you know what? They're not going to be up nearly as much as they're ultimately going to be. And so don't worry. Don't worry about, oh, what if it pulls back? All right, so you buy some more, right? What I'm, what I'm worried about is the people who are sitting on the sideline watching the prices go up, watching the price of gold stocks go up, and they don't buy until they're way up, right? When their fear is replaced by greed. So right now, don't be fearful. There is lots of opportunity in this sector All you have to do is seize it. But remember, as I said, don't seize the opportunity unless you are willing to bear the consequences if I'm wrong. So unless you're willing to lose money if I'm wrong, don't put any money in gold stocks or gold. But if you're willing to lose money if I'm wrong, then place your bets because I am very certain that I'm right and I've already put my own money where my mouth is. Oh, 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 oh,